Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, good afternoon and welcome to this session with Ali Smith, where um, Ali's relieved and so am I that William Haig, who was up there, has now disappeared. So it makes, makes you a bit more relaxed now, doesn't it? <laughs> um, I'm sure many of you, most of you, will be familiar with Ali's work. Um, I won't go into a great introduction except obviously the Booker and Orange shortlisted Hotel World and three volumes of short stories. Uh, but we're here today to talk about The Accidental, which is her new novel. And it's always very difficult talking about writers and, and trying to summarise their work beforehand. It's very difficult to say what books are about. But I think it probably is an easy way in for people that there is a great central story about a family, um, a middle-class family, who go to a, a Norfolk summer cottage, which they rent, and there is a mother and her partner and her two children. And then a rather mysterious young woman arrives unexpectedly and has a galvanizing, destructive, uh, extraordinary effect on the household. Um, Ali, you, you may want to add a few more comments to that. Ali's going to read something to give you an idea of what it's like. But No, nope, I'm just going to read. <laughs> I'm going to start at the beginning... I'm going to reach the end about Tuesday. Is that okay? <laughs> Do you want me to go up here? I need to... Wherever you're more comfortable. I think I will. Yeah. I think... I think I can. That's okay. My mother began me one evening in 1968 on a table in the cafe of the town's only cinema. One short flight of stairs away up behind the balding red velvet of the balcony curtain, the usherette was yawning, dandling her off-torch, leaning on her elbow above the rustlings and tongings of the back row and picking at the wood of the partition, flicking little splinters of it at the small town heads in the dark. On the screen above them, the film was Poor Cow, with Terence Stamp, an actor of such numinousness that my mother, young, chic, slender and imperious, and watching the film for the third time that week, had stood up, letting her seat thud up behind her, pushed past the legs of the people in her row and headed up the grubby aisle to the exit, through the curtain and out into the light. The cafe was empty, except for the boy putting chairs on tables. We're just shutting, he told her. My mother, still blinking from the dark, picked her way down the scuffed red stairs. She took the chair he was holding and put it, still upside down, down on the ground. She stepped out of her shoes. She unbuttoned her coat. Behind the till, the half-submerged oranges in the orange juice machine went round and round on their spikes. The dregs at the bottom of the tank rose and settled, rose and settled. The chairs on the table stuck their legs into the air. The scatter of cake crumbs underneath waited passive in the carpet for the vacuum cleaner nozzle. Down the grand main stairs leading out onto the street where my mother would go in a few minutes' time with her nylons rolled in a warm ball in her coat pocket, swinging her shoes in her hand by their strappy backs, Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer smiled out from behind their frames exactly like they'd still be smiling, faded and glamorous, a decade out of date, at the blaze of light that blackened the staircase five years later, when the junior projectionist cheated out of a job he believed was his, the management had hired a new projectionist from the city when the old projectionist died, gutted the building with a tin of creosote, 
and the dropped end of his cigarette. The expensive balcony seat where smoking was forbidden, up in smoke. The stalls with their deep-seated leathery smell, gone forever. The velvet drapes, the glass bowl chandelier, blow away ash, a sprinkling of tiny broken shards of light on the surface of local history. Next day's newspapers were adamant, an accident. The man who owned the cinema claimed the insurance and sold the demolished site to a cash-and-carry warehouse uh, called, rather unimaginatively, Mackay's Cash and Carry. But that night, back in 1968, in the nearly closed cafe, the voices were still booming modern love behind the walls. The music was still soaring out of nowhere. Just before the part where the filth get Terence stamp and put him where he belongs, she had fastened her heels behind his back, and my father, surprised, had slipped and grunted into her, presenting her with literally millions of possibilities, of which she chose only one. Hello. <laughs> I am Alhambra, named for the place of my conception. <laughs> Believe me, everything is meant. From my mother, grace under pressure, the uses of mystery, how to get what I want. From my father, how to disappear, how to not exist. Okay, so I'm writing this book and I'm thinking, I was remembering all the Victorian novels I've ever read which start... I was born in the manse of St. Michael uh, in the year of 1860 to a father, Dennis, and a mother, Catherine, on a cold, cold November day, and all that. And I was thinking, what would those books, you know, if we wanted to write an I was born book now, how would it, how would it look to have, to have lived through what we've just lived through? I was born in a trunk. It was during the matinee on Friday. I stopped the show. I was born in the year of the supersonic, the era of the multi-story, multi-vitamin, multi-tonic, the high-rise time of men with the technology and women who could be bionic, when jump jets were harrier, when QE2 was cunard, when 38 feet tall the Princess Margaret stood stately in her hover pad, the Annie erotique was only 30 air-cushioned minutes away, and everything went at twice the speed of sound. I opened my eyes. It was all in colour. It didn't look like Kansas anymore. The students were on the barricades. The mode was maxi. The Beatles were transcendental. They opened a shop. It was Britain. It was great. My mother was a nun who could no longer stand the convent. She married my father, the captain. He was very strict. She taught us all to sing and made us new clothes out of curtains. We ran across the bridges and jumped up and down the steps. We climbed the trees and fell out of the boat into the lake. We came first in the singing contest and narrowly escaped the Nazis. <laughs> I was formed and made in the Saigon days, the Rhodesian days, the days of the rivers of blood, disembowel Enoch Powell. Apollo 7 splashed down, Tunbridge Wells was flooded. A crowd flowed over London Bridge and 36 Americans made bids to buy it. They shot the king in Memphis, which delayed the Academy Awards telecast for two whole days. He had a dream. He held these truths to be self-evident, that all men were created equal and would one day sit down together at the table of brotherhood. Now, they shot the other brother at the Ambassador Hotel, righteous bros, it said, in lights above the hotel car park. Meanwhile, my father was the matchmaker and my mother could fly using only her umbrella. When I was a child, I ran the Grand National on my horse. They didn't know I was a girl until I fainted and they unbuttoned my jockey shirt. <laughs> but anything was possible. We had a flying, floating car. 
We stopped the rail disaster by waving our petticoats at the train. My father was innocent in prison. My mother made ends meet. I sold flowers in Covent Garden. A posh geezer taught me how to speak proper and took me to the races designed by Cecil Beaton. Though they dubbed my voice in the end because the singing wasn't good enough. But my father was Alfie. My mother was Isadora. I was unnaturally psychic in my teens. I made a boy fall off his bike and I burned down a whole school. My mother was crazy. She was in love with God. There I was at the altar about to marry someone else when my boyfriend hammered on the church glass at the back and we eloped together on a bus. My mother was furious. She'd slept with him too. The devil got me pregnant and a satanic sect made me go through with it. Then I fell in with a couple of outlaws and did me some talking to the sun. I said I didn't like the way he got things done. I had sex in the back of an old closing cinema. I used butter in Paris. I had a farm in Africa. I took off my clothes in the window of an apartment building and distracted the two police officers from watching for the madman on the roof who was trying to shoot the priest. I fell for an Italian. It was his moves on the dance floor that did it. I knew what love meant. It meant never having to say you're sorry. It meant the man who drove the taxi would kill the presidential candidate or the pimp. It was soft as an easy chair. It happened so fast. I had my legs bitten off by the shark. I stabbed the kidnapper, but so did everybody else. It wasn't just me on the Orient Express. My father was Terence, and my mother was Julie, Stamp, Christy. I was born and bred by the hills, alive, and the animals talked to. I considered myself well in, part of the furniture. There wasn't a lot to spare. Who cared? I put on a show right here in the barn. I was born singing the song at the top of my just-formed lungs. Inchworm, inchworm, measuring the marigolds. Seems to me you'd stop and see how beautiful they are. I rose inch by inch with the international rise of the nose of Streisand. The Z of Liza. What good was sitting alone in my room? When things went decimal, I was ready for it. I was born in a time of light, speed, celluloid. Downstairs was smoking. The balcony was none. It cost more money to sit in the balcony. The kinematograph, the idoloscope, the galloping tintypes, the silver screen, the flicks, the pictures, up rose the smoke, misty watercolour memories. Ah, but it's all in the game and the way you play it. And you've got to play the game, you know. I was born free. I've had the time of my life. And for all we know, I'm going to live forever. <laughs> so you go to the cinema occasionally, then, do you? <laughs> I love, the, I love the pictures. I always have. Mm. I mean, listening to that, it reminds me, as I'm sure it reminds a lot of people in the audience, of just how many films there are that are right in there in your, in your subconscious, in your whole kind of growing up collective memory. But I'm getting... People might be a bit confused at the beginning because the story I talked about doesn't appear to have any relationship to that at all. Um, you actually... I mean, people occasionally say the idea came to me in a dream. Uh-huh. But this did. I'm afraid it did. It really, really did. <laughs> I still can't believe it, actually. I hope it, I'm really hoping it'll happen again, because um, it's never happened to me before. Um, uh, uh, I have a friend, Kate Atkinson, and she, she has dreamed parts of novels, and she even dreamed the title of Behind the Scenes at the Museum. And there it is. It's a book, Behind the Scenes at the Museum. Um, and I never, ever dream anything that goes into my books, but for this book, I just finished Hotel World, and I was thinking I was going to write a kind of death in Venice, a kind of you know love affair between a much older woman and a much younger boy or girl, I wasn't sure what it was going to be, boy or girl. And then I had a dream which was basically a prose style. It was a dream with sentences in it, and I, I 
wrote them down in the middle of the night, five o'clock in the morning, and the next morning I looked at it and thought, well, that's, that's all right, that's, I can, that's interesting, maybe I should go with that. So um, I did. <laughs> you must be almost the almost example of anybody who's written something down in the middle of the night and found that it still made sense in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't quite believe that, actually, but it did. I mean, it was a very clear dream. It was, very, it was absolutely in words and sentences. I am Alhambra, named for the place of my conception. It was, it was you know, a prose dream. <sighs> Never had one since. <laughs> Never had one before it. Who, who, does anyone here dream in prose? <laughs> no, see, I think... <laughs> No, I think it's a. I, I think it's a. Uh, maybe I made it up. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Anyway, there, there you are with the whole thing. Now, it's not coincidental that Terence Stamp turns up in that very first, that opening passage, no, no, no. is it? Because the situation that I described of the household into which a stranger appears is, in fact, very reminiscent of a film in which Terence Stamp appeared. Yes, there's a, a Pasolini film called Theoreme, or Theorem in English, and. Um, it's, uh, and it's a book. Uh, it was a book and then a film, both by Pasolini. Um, and uh, I've seen it described as the last, one of the last Marxist films. And sure enough, it's a, it's a deeply political film at the same time as just, it's a fable. I mean, a, a beautiful man, boy, Terence Stamp, turns up at the door of a very bourgeois uh, Italian family um, and uh, enters their lives, enters their hearts, and changes everything. And in a way, it's the basis of... Uh, this story, but also it's, a, it's the same basis as a fairy story where um, the green leprechaun knocks at your door and says, I'm looking for someone who's kind, uh, have you any bread? And whether or not you let the leprechaun in and what, that, what happens with that, it's exactly that same fable. And Amber, Amber the young woman who mm. arrives, I mean, she both disrupts the family, but she also reveals to each individual member of the family mm. something about themselves. Well, it's going to happen if you let someone in. <laughs> got to be careful who you let in you know in, mu in much the same way as and this is why in a way i see the cinema parts as as uh, pivotal and central to the story uh, what stories we let into our lives uh, will change us and affect us and we you know we really ought to think about what they mean when they come to us stories do come stories are live things it's, it's like something knocking at your door and entering your world entering your house and they will come in and they will take you know everything you've got if they can um, and they will give you something in return and that's the bargain that comes with a story when you take a story on. Now, the, the, Powerful just, things, stories. <laughs> just returning to, um, the, ooh, returning to the... You don't get that very often, do you, on stage? <laughs> I like it. <laughs> There's a singer called Victoria Williams, and she always brings her dogs on stage. And, and she, she sings to them. They come and they curl on the front of the stage, and she's got two or three dogs, and they curl at the front, and, and she, she's, you know, she sings them a little. She sings, oh, it's great to have a dog. <laughs> she sings, she's they join in. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the cinema, because clearly, I mean, there are cinema references. I mean, cinema references are through, throughout your work. I'm quite interested in the relationship of what you think cinema can do and what you think fiction can do. Because cinema obviously has a very strong emotional effect, and it does, it does get into you. I don't know whether it changes you in the same way that mm. you think stories do. Oh, of course it does. It's changed us all. I mean, uh, um, I remember reading D.H. Lawrence writing you know, quite near the beginning of the century, in the teens, the 19-teens, and he says, now because we have cinema, everybody in the whole world, from scullery, scullery made up to grand lady, knows how to react when you talk about jealousy. They know to slam a door, they know <laughs> to slap a face, and in a way it's like a codified... Uh, version of emotions or codified version of how we live and we all see it and once seen I mean the visual sense is the, the strongest sense if you do a, um, 
an experiment with students and you say to them, okay, um, write down, you know, for one second, for one minute, write down everything you can see, write down everything you can hear, write down everything you can touch. Um, the visual sense is the strongest always, always for most people. And it's, it's true. And they're in the cinema, in the dark. Uh, it comes directly to you. It's a communal experience, but then it goes, you know, it goes straight through into your brain. That's what our eyes are, holds into our brains. And so, okay, so what's the difference then? What can fiction do that cinema can't and vice versa? What can fiction do? Fiction can happen inside our brains without having to go through our eyes. In other words, we don't have to have seen it. In other words, we can imagine it. We can actually still imagine. We can reimagine and we can imagine. So we have, if you like, uh, a kind of choice and a relationship with it, which is a little different from cinema, I think. But there are things... I mean, I suppose what I'm getting at Mm. is the references to cinema and the way that you pull cinema into your work... Mm. I mean, what is it that you're trying to summon up that you think talking about any other story or place wouldn't do? The, the art of the 20th century, the thing which happened in the 20th century, which is that stories have changed, and they really have. They've, we, we now understand story very visually in a way that no other culture uh, will have been able to do before. This last 100 years has really changed what narrative is for us, and one of the reasons that that has ha- you know, is, is cinema, one reason that that's happened, definitely. And so it's inevitable, do you think, that literature from now on is going to make those references to cinema that possibly in previous centuries would always have been to it's the not classics? Just li- it's or- not literature, it's narrative. Narrative is now going to have to make those references to what we now understand as narrative, which is what we've imbibed right the way up from the books we read, from everything we've ever seen. Hmm? You don't think, then, that... I mean, because there are, there's a school of thought that says... Hmm. And I, I'm not going to talk that much more about cinema, but I'd just quite like to hmm. nail this. You don't think that cinema was a 20th century phenomenon, and that it's sort of gone as far as it can go. More people are going to the cinema now than have ever gone before. They're going to a very different kind of cinema. Uh, But cinema goes in cycles, it changes. I mean, uh, um, in silent cinema, cinema came from all over the world. When sound came in, cinema came from America, and mainly America, mainly England, and uh, most countries lost and, you know, kept their own uh, indigenous uh, cinema making so there would be Italian cinema but then everything else would have come from outside from in English if you see what I mean so English became the overwhelming language from mainly from America as well and James Joyce of course was very keen on cinema God, Joyce was keen on cinema he was one of the first uh, people who tried to put cinema into Dublin uh, he actually tried he had a little um, cinema, a little house didn't he I mean cinema he tried he tried yeah. to start cinema in Dublin and um, mm. he was foiled at a couple of turns but he was fascinated by cinema actually you can still see some of the silent films that Joyce will have seen and trace them into Ulysses and you know, Wandering Rocks is taken from a series of pageants and processions which Joyce saw on a film which you can now see yeah. so um, I just wondered whether that I mean obviously you're interested in cinema in its own right but given that you're also very interested in Joyce, mm. um, whether there'd been some, you know, you'd picked up something from that as well, or were interested in that? No, I think, but I think that the things are intertwined. I mean, I think we're talking about something which can't be unintertwined, which is that Joyce is always talking about the shape of a story, and cinema, for him, was another means to story, another means to understanding something, which was changing story. Now, the, the, the framework of the story that, that we talked about, mm. or that I that mentioned at the beginning, which is of the family yeah. and the entrance of Amber into this family. Um, in some ways, it, it, it perhaps seems, at the outset, more conventional than some of your earlier books, because there is... Apparently. <laughs> Apparently this is a normal novel. <laughs> <laughs> now, you might take issue, you might think that, you know, might think that Hotel World was... Well, I do. Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but of course it wasn't, because you know, nobody thinks it was. I mean, presumably, uh, it's, people are still scared of novels which take different shapes, you know, or still a little alarmed when a novel doesn't seem like it's going to be a normal novel. 
And so we, the hotel world had these, I mean, I'm sure many of you have read it, but had these five interlocking stories and five interlocking female characters. Um, but this does see, I mean, was, was there something that you wanted about this, the arc of this particular story of the family, the woman coming in, the individual stories within the family, that was kind of a discipline on which you could go on these great diversions that we're going to, we might talk about a little bit in a okay. moment? I think um, it's interesting that people have, have seen this novel as a much more traditional novel, and it's because it's very obvious. I mean, there are three sections. One's called beginning, one's called middle, and one's called the end. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you can't get much more traditional than that in a story. That's the way a story's supposed to go. I mean, I, I really do think it's surprising that this is, this is more of a novel, supposedly, than the other novels I've written, that, which have, have, to me, all been quite t- t- chronologically traditional, although they may have played with things within the chronological framework. Um, beginning, middle, and end, you see, once you have a, uh, an arc which is about that particular chronology, then you have uh, an arc of morality, and you have a question which is a moral question, because uh, if you like, the end for all of us, the chronological end for all of us, is a kind of a death, and then that's when things get summed up. That's the end. That's when um, we'll, you know, our lives are finished and we lived them and we know the shape of them. So it begs a question. There's a beginning which then you know, produces a middle, which then produces an end. You know. But happily... Um, I'm glad to say that the end in this book is about 100 pages long. Um, so and the beginning is also 100 pages long, and so is the middle. I mean, end in itself, you know, as a concept, as, you know, as far as I'm concerned, is always a new beginning, always, 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 about something starting again, coming around again. There's a sense in, in this book, and also in Hotel World, of, of the idea of, um, of movement, of the narrator sort of skimming over the surface of events and looking down and dipping into things and coming back up again. And obviously there are the metaphors of swimming and plummeting very much in, in hotel world. I mean, did you feel for you that, that writing is, is like that, about skimming down and going into... Oh, no, I don't know what I feel about writing. As soon as I start to think about it, it <laughs> goes slips away. away. Yeah. Uh, really, it's a mysterious process. It's very, very hard to talk about. And the more I try to talk about it, the, the slipperier it gets, which I think must be good. I think that's a good thing. I think if we could hold it to us or, or have it you know, pinned down or, or sorted, then I think it would probably be um, dead, actually, or something about it would have, would have died off. I think of it more as a kind of, a kind of dialogue with something with which you have to argue or with, with which you have to reason. Um, and if, when you're in that dialogue, it's impossible to talk about, and when you're out of that dialogue, it's close enough impossible to talk about, you know. But when you are engaged in, um, because, I mean, just to return to, to the framework of the story with the family here, when you decide that you are going to go off into one character and perhaps take us away from what's been happening in the house sure. at, at that time, <laughs> how far do you think you can go? Does there come a point where you think, actually, I can't leave it here anymore, I've, I've got to go back, I might, I might have lost them, or...? I think with, you see, the, the book is structured by voice. The voice is all third person, but each person has a, you know, a particular section. And voice always tells you what it wants to do. I mean, it really does. It's, it's, you have to listen to voice, and voice will tell you, you know, well, actually, I'm going to go over here. I'm going to talk about this. This is the word I want to center myself on at the moment. You just have to listen. It really is a case of having to keep your senses open as a writer. You have to listen, and you have to wait, and often you have to... You know, say, well, do you really want to do that? And the voice says, yes, I have to, I do, that's the thing I'm going to do, and then it does it. There must be some voices that are easier and harder Mm. than to... I mean, there's a a child in here who's Mm. who's 12, Mm. um, and that voice is is very good. I mean, it seems to me that it's not... um, What's interesting about that is not really the the way you'd expect a 12-year-old, but having had 
a 12-year-old who is no longer a 12-year-old. I mean, I know that actually is the way they are, but it's not very often the way they turn off in fiction. That's voice for you. Voice <laughs> makes it all immediate. Voice is what happens. If you, can't do, if you can't get the voice, then you haven't got the person. I really, I really think that's it. And it's really a game and a, and a, and a case and a skill or something craft-wise of just being open enough to listen for voice so that the, the voice itself is alive enough to produce the, the person. That's, you know. But do you ever get start off with characters and then find that actually the voice eludes you? Well, presumably. Um, uh, the thing is, I think when you write something, nothing's ever wasted, is what I think. I mean, you, you write something down, there'll be something in it you want, whether you think there isn't or you think there is. I mean, you, you start blank, nothing at all. You write three paragraphs, you look at them, you get rid of everything but one line. The one line has in it something which you know, intrigues. Uh, so you, you, know, you push that one line, or maybe you leave those three paragraphs for two days, you go back and say, I see I've mentioned this word exactly in this paragraph, this paragraph, and this paragraph. Obviously, this voice is concerned with exactness. So then you start to think about what that person would do with exactness, and then something else turns up, or maybe, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bit like excavation <laughs> as well as listening. It's a bit like you have to kind of uncover something or you know and, and on those terms you have to be very careful with it and you have to be quite instinctual and listen for it and feel for it and know what not to break actually not to be too tough with it so that when you go back so you you write something and then you go back and, and look at it but it no, that's but how i do it everybody does yeah. it differently no of yeah. course but sure. no, i'm just interested yeah. in the way that, that you do it but you do that in a, in a quite sort of delicate way so you won't because there's something there that you're not quite aware of yet. always 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 something that you have no idea what it's going to be you really don't with, with a novel you you often have a sense of an overarching structure which is usually chronological and novels tend to tend to want to be for me chronological um but uh, in that structure god knows what will happen absolutely you've no idea you know you really don't it's it's like and margaret atwood describes it and i think she's absolutely right it's like walking in a room where the lights are off and you're bumping into furniture you have no idea what you've just bumped into you've really hurt your leg on it you just you know you don't know whether you should go over here or you'll trip over something you know maybe you'll crack your head open you don't know but you know you get to the other side of the room you put the light on and there it is poorly furnished you know <laughs> Yeah. And it is, I mean, it is a very exciting idea, isn't it, the entrance of a stranger into any, any little society. I mean, it's obviously, it's one of the very, very old... It's fabulous. It is a fable. Yes. It is, yes, it is. It's exactly that. The, like I say, the, the, you know, the thing which tests you, either biblically, where um, you know, the, the, the God comes to the door, mythically, where the gods come to the door and ask for help, and then you know, we'll give you the gift of living forever as trees... You know, or you know, uh, or fabulously fable-wise, where you know something a little unlikely might come to the door and say, "If you can guess my name, you know, I'm going to give you a golden goose." You know, and this goose will always lay golden eggs for you. But if you guess my name wrong, <laughs> you know, I run off with your children. Well, yeah, quite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and because it's um, when we first encounter the household. I mean, the, there is Eve, who is a writer, yeah. and and her partner who is not the father of her children mm. um, and he's a, a university teacher with not a great record in sexual harassment <laughs> and, and then there are the two there's the adolescent boy who doesn't really speak and the 12 year old girl who's sort of really quite sort of shut in on herself it would look to start with as though it was um, you know middle class dysfunctional family and as though you were really about to kind of spread them out on the slab and, but in fact I mean what I, I really liked about the book was was the compassion, that actually it would have been quite easy. I thought you were really just going to pull them apart. Hmm. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, 
why would you write a book to pull people apart? I mean, uh, people are human, and, and uh, when a voice is there on the page in front of you, it's a human voice, if you're lucky, if it's alive. Uh, then, so why would you want to pull it apart, unless you were a torturer, which, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think I am yet. I mean, you know, some writers are <laughs> some torturers. Yeah, yeah, they are, you know. Um, uh, some writers, uh, actually, Muriel Spark is a glorious torturer. God, when I think of torturers, but she's also a benign torturer. You know, she will happily, you know, stab someone to death, but then she'll have the ghost of the stabbed person to death, you know, the person who's been stabbed to death, you know, haunting the person. You know, I mean, there's, there's always consequence. There's always the human thing. There's always the fact that, you know, well, torture will end in, uh, in consequence of some kind. Yeah. And it's also about the tension about, I mean, I, I can't remember exactly the words, so forgive me, but between the kind of love that makes you panic oh, yeah. and the kind of love that makes you happy. Yeah. Well, there we go. The kind of, I mean, that's exactly it. The, the relationship between panic, happy, and love. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's in there in this book. It's an interesting thing about the, um, the, the father not being the children's father. You see, that's something that was forced on me by the voice of the child, Astrid, who absolutely, when I started the book, um, wanted to be two people and there was this was her this was her, the thing which which formed her she she knows she's Astrid Smart she knows she's also also Astrid Berensky she's not allowed to know about her father so of course this is the one thing she can't help but think about it's the thing she's been told not to think about told not to ask about but she can't stop thinking about it because all of us have things which motivate us and this is you know in a way this was this kind of came with that voice with that girl and it's also a very fertile area, isn't it, from fairy tale mm. to be, you know, the parent of one, but step, really know that actually the stepfather yeah. and, and the idea that you really belong sort of somebody else. Um, yeah. And ghosts, I mean, obviously Hotel World, the narrator is mm. a ghost. One of the narrators. One yes. of the narrators mm. as well, yeah. yes, mm. I suppose. And, and the kind of abiding presence who kind of connects them all really one by another. Um, and that, the idea of, of the dead being amongst the living interest you? Well, they are. <laughs> We've driven through uh, the countryside today and I've seen so many graveyards. I mean, they're just there. I mean, of course they are. Mm. Um, oh, I read such an interesting thing. Okay. I'm reading this brilliant book. Um, it's called Digging the Dirt. It's by Jennifer Wallace. Digging the Dirt, the Archaeological Imagination. Now, in this, uh, she it's a, it's a book about the stratifications of our imagination, the stratifications of our own bodies and the stratification of the world in which we live and in history. And in the first chapter, she talks about how, uh, well, she takes notions of uh, that Jameson and also Bachelard talk about where uh, she says, you know, living now, uh, spending money now uh, in a corporate world, nobody really wants us to know about history or have history or have context or think about anything other than our iPods. They just want us to want the thing, the next thing, to plug in the next thing, to buy the next thing, because that's how money works, that's how we work, that's how we live. Um, and then she goes back to talk about what a stratification, a stratif uh, an imagination in layers uh, does. And uh, she looks at Wordsworth and she looks at uh, Stukely, the uh, amateur archaeologist, and she looks at Robert Burns and Milton. Did you know that Robert Burns was dug up after his death. And did you know that Milton was dug up after his death? And also Lawrence Stern was dug up after his death. I didn't know these things. Did anyone, did anyone know the, these things? I didn't know these things. What, was this so people could try and find out where the genius well, lay? Well, 100 years after Milton uh, was buried, um, some people who decided that they'd like to know whether or not it was really Milton, because they'd like to put up a monument, <laughs> decided they'd dig down. So they dug down, they found an iron coffin, under, uh, underneath which was a wooden coffin. So that was his father, and that was Milton, and they thought that was all right. So they closed up the grave, and they went and had a drink. 
and they got drunk and then they went back to the grave and they prized it open, the, the, the iron coffin, and they took out bits of Milton. They took out his jawbone, they took out his leg bone, they took out bits of his hair um, and they sold them. <laughs> and the next day, a woman called Elizabeth Grant, who was one of the archaeologists, in, this is in the late 1700s, um, uh, it, it charged people sixpence to come and see uh, Milton and they also stole bits of Milton and sold it. Number one, uh, Robert Burns, when they opened his grave, because also they were going to, you know, erect a monument, so they had to open his grave, he hadn't decomposed. <gasps> Extraordinary. Same with Milton. Milton's hair, you could still see Milton's hair, but his fa Robert Burns' head had not decomposed, so they picked it up and it decomposed, of course. <laughs> so then they did a, you know, a cast of it, which now resides at the Irvin Burns Society. Um, and Lawrence Stern was dug up by um, body snatchers and it was uh, anatomized at Cambridge University and uh, someone recognized him on the slab. Um, <laughs> a doctor called Collingdon recognized him and didn't say anything, just carried on cutting him oh. up. And afterwards recorded in his books that he... Okay, so there's... So this book... She talks about all sorts of things about why we want to bury things, why we want to dig them up, why we... Uh, want to live in layers or have things where we understand things on more than one dimension and why we don't. Um, and uh, one of the wonderful things she says that in old country churchyards, that's a long way around to all the country churchyards I've passed today in the car, um, they didn't used to have to put people's names on the graves. Why would they? Everybody knew who was buried there. Everybody knew the family place uh, where people would be buried deep down, deep down, deep down. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the, the, the village knew this grave, that grave, this grave. Simply said, died or beloved didn't need to say anything else. <laughs> I mean, in a way, uh, I'm fascinated by the way we know and the way we lose knowledge and the way things slip away from us and the way we live so fast uh, that, uh, well, uh, we miss the slow, in a way, yeah. So do you think, I mean, do you think that the nature then of imagination and memory changes because the pace of life speeds up? It's bound to. It's bound to change. It's, I mean, it's, our memories... Uh, I mean, we have experienced so much information just in this one day, this half a day uh, today. Uh, we've, we've, in, the, in half a day, we have had more information flashed at us in newspapers, TVs, just you know, walking along the street than the average person 200 years ago would have had in a whole lifetime. It must have changed us. It has, it has changed us. Well, we can't know, but it must have. I never know about that argument because, you know, there you were 200 years ago, but you're probably worrying about the weave on the muslin or, or well, whatever it be, is. You know, but you'll have more time different. to worry about it. You're going, I'm worried but about But there'll be the just as many stimuli. There'll just be different ones. <laughs> there are different ones, but there are less of them. It's a bit, you know, it's a bit like, you know, the stimuli of the blades of grass, not the stimuli mm. of all the, you know... You know, the stuff which comes at us. But you so might that. just find that what was happening is you were beginning to look at the different kinds of blades of grass and become as concerned about that as anything else. For sure. That's Wordsworth. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. It is. It's Wordsworth. It's why you can deify a tree. Yeah. And is that also why in your fiction you have those moments where you slow down instantly? I'm thinking of... Um, oh, I don't know why I do anything. It's well, hard. I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, it's, very, it's really hard but, to, you know... But the things that you are interested in, is it connected then, your they interest be, in... Of course, yeah. I was describing, for example, the, I mean, the extraordinary sequence where um, she plummets through the... This is a, the, a character who dies because of a fall in a dumbwaiter hmm. in Hotel World. Yeah. And that incident, you go through that. Through various, you kind of approach it from various, at various points in the book so hmm. that we... 
a real sense of, of what it is like, and it is that moment about slowing down. Oh. Well, the, the, I mean, in hotel world, it's really about time. It's about time, and it's about the the, the loss of time. I mean, it's about the death of a girl who, she, in her late teens, you know, she loses, you know, everything's gone. And right the way through that book, there's a kind of there's this the kind of spine of the book is this shaft through the hotel where, you know, where the death has happened. Boom, and the the, the the ghost wants to know how long it took how long the death took, how long exactly she wants to know how many seconds it took because that's her due, that was her life, you know, and that was it, that fast. Because life is fast, you know. But how did you ever, I mean, the, the, it's such an extraordinary image. No, I know. No, seriously, I don't, I don't the, know. <laughs> the dumb waiter, yeah. you know, a person in a dumb waiter. Oh. Plummeting. I mean, I know they always look quite precarious. I but think I must have read about this. Because people have, uh, I, don't, I don't remember reading about it, but people have said to me afterwards, this happened. It happened mm -hmm. to two girls, and it happened in an Edinburgh hotel where two girls climbed into the dumbwaiter and the night before the hotel opened, and sh you know, the dumbwaiter mm -hmm. fell. Now, I'm, I'm sh I must have, uh, presumably I heard it or read it, and then didn't register it, and then it did register it, you know. Mm -hmm. but, and other people have told me about other people this has happened to, that, you know, that, so this is a story that's not apocryphal. It has happened to people, they do do it. You know, and also because... Uh, in that book, the character is being boxed, um, as we all are in our lives. People like to box us, and sometimes we like to be boxed. And uh, the box won't save you, you know? Mm. Yeah. Now, the, the accidental, um, I saw an interview in which you described it as being a war novel in some mm. ways, in that it was, mm. you were writing it in 2001 when, when September the 11th um, happened. And I, Wonder whether I mean that th there is an image that recurs, which is f f towards it, which is of a woman soldier, mm. a photograph of a woman soldier with a oh, thumb yeah. up, yep. grinning at the camera, with an open body bag underneath, and it obviously brings up all those kind of other grave kind of yep. things. Can you give me some or give us some idea of, of why you describe it as a war novel? Okay, it starts. The first day it starts is the day that the body of Dr. David Kelly is discovered. We don't know it is in the book. It's just a body. It's a body on the TV, and the newscasters are saying that it's uh, a suicide, and they're also saying that a man has gone missing, and they won't make the link between the two because something is stopping them making the link. Legal, rhetoric, politics, they can't make the link. So at the beginning of the book, it asks you to make a link, and if you make the link, you do. If you don't, you don't. Never mind, it's there. So... And it ends, the last chapter takes place last May with the um, abuse pictures beginning to appear in the, the newspapers. Um, and it's an arc, beginning, middle, end, which goes from that body being found um, and um, ends with the, these uh, abuse pictures. Now, in between that, an English family is having a summer holiday, as we all did in that beautiful summer of the year 2003, while that war rattled on, even though it was supposed to be over, um, and that's what it's about. It's about those parallel worlds, I think. I think it's absolutely about uh, the link which you can choose to make or not choose to make. It's really up to you, really. And it's still there, it's still happening, but you have to choose to make the link if you want to or not. And you, if you don't want to, then you clearly you don't have to. If you live here, it's a beautiful summer. You can just lie out the back in the garden and get brown. Um, uh, so there, there, there's that. Also, it's a book which is, I think, really about bullying. It's about all sorts of bullying. It's about sexual bullying. It's about corporate bullying. It's about kids bullying each other. It's about how stories or narratives are used to bully us, all of us, all the time. And also how they can feed us, how we could enrich ourselves by doing something else, I think, is how I would answer that question.
Good. Okay. <laughs> That's good. That would do me very well. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. I'm sure okay. everybody will. Now, we could do some questions. Do you, do you want to read some more? Are you, um, How are we for time? What well, do do? we're now about 22. I'm actually using somebody's borrowed watches where I'm squinting because I'm not so familiar with it. But it's about 22. So we have about 20 minutes for okay. questions. If you would like to read again. Shall I? What, do what, do what would you, you to read again? Reading. Okay, a bit more reading. Okay. <laughs> I will then. Well, shall I read a bit from Astrid? Yes, this, is the, this the, is the girl. The child at the beginning, who we start with. Well, would you like the beginning of Astrid or the end of Astrid? The end of Astrid, okay. <laughs> so I'm going to read you the end of Astrid's beginning, then. <laughs> do you, you see what I mean? Because she's... <laughs> I will do that thing. Okay. Um, Astrid likes to film things. She, she's been filming the dawns. She wakes up in the morning on purpose to film dawn. So she wakes up with her camera. She has a beginnings tape and a non-beginnings tape. She slots her beginnings tape and she films the dawn. And then she puts in her non-beginnings tape and she films things like the domestic cleaner um, in their house, hoovering the stairs, or the handle going up and down on the door it's because she thinks that that might be history. She wants to film uh, some vandalism at a local Indian restaurant um, because she thinks that that might be crucial to people's inquiries uh, later. Um, so... Um, Anyway, she's, she's, wake, she's woken up, she's come downstairs, there's a strange person in the house, um, and uh, she almost took some film of her, but she didn't quite manage. Um, it's a little later than that. She comes back to the house, the house is empty, she's been watching TV. She thinks now she'll go and film the Indian restaurant. She fits the battery into the camera and checks it's working. She tucks the charger, still charging the other battery, in behind the old, horrible crime and mystery paperbacks on the lowest shelf of the bookcase. I should say Astrid hates this house. It's in Norfolk. She thinks it's horrible. She thinks dead people have lived in it. She's very upset by it. She listens in the hall, but there's no sound of Magnus, her brother. She leaves the house by the front door. Her mother and Michael keep saying how amazing it is to be in the country where you can trust people and leave your car unlocked and the doors of the house unlocked or even wide open. Astrid checks that the front door is locked behind her. If people want to rob the house, they can go through the open French windows in the garden and their mother can be to blame. They won't find the charger unless they've come specifically to steal old Agatha Christie novels, which would be an excellent ironic crime. <laughs> She walks down the lane that leads to the road that leads to the village. It is very hot. She thinks of the house behind her, sitting there full of all its horrible things and all their holiday things there too, arranged and different like things floating on a too hot surface. It's the moment before burglars walk in through the garden and just help themselves. But since it's the moment before this happens, the room downstairs are all empty, nothing in them but things, like the rooms are holding their breath in this hot summer air. Magnus told her the idea about how something on a film is different from something in real life. In a film, there's always a reason. If there's an empty room in a film, it would be for a reason they were showing you an empty room. Magnus held up a pen, then dropped it. He said, if you drop a pen out of your hand in real life, that's all it is, a pen you dropped out of your hand, there on the ground. But if someone in a film drops a pen and the camera shows you the pen, then that pen that gets dropped is more important than if it's just a dropped pen in real life. Astrid knows this is true, but she's not completely sure how. When Magnus is speaking to people again, she'll ask him. She'll also ask him if she can remember too about why she poked the dead animal with the stick without thinking. Magnus will know the reason she wanted to and will explain it. That would be amazing if she'd had film of that dead animal, not dead yet, but just before it was run over, the minute before it was run over. There it would be, sitting at the side of the road, whatever it was, a rabbit or a cat, just sitting there with its eyes and paws, etc., 
But it would only be really amazing if you watched it knowing what happened after it. You would know, but the animal wouldn't. If you knew this and had film of that, it would be exactly like if you were looking at a room before it was burgled. You would know, but the room wouldn't. Not that a room can know things, as if a room could be alive like a person. Imagine a room alive, its furniture moving round by itself, its walls calling across the room to one another. A living room, ha ha. <laughs> Imagine if you were in the room, the living room, ha ha ha, and you didn't expect it to be alive, and you went to sit down in a chair, and the chair said, get off. <laughs> Don't sit on me. Or it moved so you couldn't sit on it. Or if walls had eyes and could speak, i.e., you could come into a room and ask it what had happened in it while you were in another room, and it could tell you exactly what... Hello, someone says. Hello, Astrid says back. It's the person from this morning who was lying on the sofa in the front room. She's walking alongside Astrid. She has two apples in one hand. She weighs them both, looks them over, chooses which one to keep for herself. Here, she says. The apple comes at Astrid through the air and hits her quite hard in the chest. She catches it in the crook of her arm between herself and her camera. Astrid, the person is saying, Astrum, Astralis. How does it feel to have such a starry name? Then she starts talking about stars. She says that because of light pollution from cities and streetlights, the night sky can't be seen properly anymore, and that all over the Western world, the sky now never gets properly dark. In more than half of Europe, in America, all over the world, people can't see the stars anymore in the same way as they, as they were able to in the past. She has a way of talking, i.e. Irish-sounding, or maybe a kind of American Though Astrid hasn't said anything about how she's going to the Curry Palace, she starts talking about it. She says, has Astrid seen it? And that it is a blatant act of local crime. Why else would anyone throw black paint at the door and windows of the only ethnic restaurant around in the village, the only ethnic restaurant for miles? Astrid holds her camera up higher, then up near her eye, though it's off and its lens cap is on. She hopes the person will see it and ask her about it. But the person has stopped talking now and is walking faster, a little ahead of Astrid. Astrid lowers the camera. She starts eating the apple. She hadn't realised how hungry she is. How did you know, she says. I mean about the restaurant. She hurries to keep up. How did I know, the person says. How could you miss it? How could you not know? Are you something to do with the house? Astrid asks. And so on. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. So, uh, we have a couple of roving microphones, which is the usual form in these things. In fact, I can see, or even one roving microphone down there. If anybody's got a question, just put a hand up. Mm. At the back. You terrified them now. <laughs> that's that no, clear no, armistice. There's, that's one, there's, there's one here. Yeah. Yes, what I want to ask is, you've, you work as a critic and as a teacher, as well as as a writer. I want to know how the critic lives with the writer. Um, do, do you, does the writer have to tell the critic to go away? Yeah, they really fight, um, and so does the teacher. Um, they all fight together, in fact. It's a bit like that triangle of panic, <laughs> panic, love, and whatever the other thing was. Um, actually, no, I think, in a, in a way, they're, they're quite suitable bedfellows, even though they do argue. Um, because, uh, I take, again, a, a thing that Margaret Atwood said as a useful uh, explanation for it, Claire. Um, uh, she says that our brains, when we're working creatively, uh, are... Uh, spatial, you know, and our brains when we're working logically are logical. So A, B, C, D, E, F, G equals the critic, but Z, H, X equals the, the creative worker. It is like using a different part of your brain. It's like your brain can do all those things. Um, 
I haven't taught for a long time, but I do know that teaching was exhausting. It was really exhausting because you had to go X, H, J for people who were also going X, G, <laughs> uh, uh, and letters which didn't you know, maybe belong in your alphabet. Um, and it was quite a different language. Um, and to be properly generous and to be a, a proper good teacher, you had to take on those different alphabets, those different structures. And that meant that everything else got pushed to the back, including the critic, including the, the, the fiction writer. So uh, teaching was something I, I'll do again with, um, only with, with choice and with care because it, it took a lot of energy. You know? But do you, do you never find that the critic is inhibiting to the creative process. Oh, no, 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 absolutely not, no. The, the critic, I, my, my critic is very small. <laughs> really, she, she's a very small critic about that big, and you know, I keep her here. <laughs> she can be kicked aside if necessary. No, 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 I always keep her here. <laughs> <laughs> just, just that. Okay. Sorry, next one over. Your interest in um, the past and heritage and atmosphere, um, do you believe in ghosts? Yeah, um, I, I do. I think I do believe in ghosts. I've never seen a ghost. Um, my father has seen ghosts. Um, my father saw, he, he swears, he also has seen the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> and I, I believe him when he tells me that story because he is a great storyteller. But he, has, he really has seen the Loch Ness Monster. He, he, he slewed his car into the lay-by once when he was, he's an electrician and he was driving along the side of the loch having wired someone's house. And he, he, saw, he slewed his car, he saw something and he saw it disappear. And he has seen, he, he swears he saw the ghost of a murdered child. When he was a 10-year-old boy, the ghost came into the room. Um, I have never seen a ghost. I'm completely unpsychic uh, in those ways. Um, I was interested, I saw Laurie Anderson speak last week uh, with Doris Lessing, and she says she has also seen a ghost, but she doesn't believe in ghosts. Mm. How's that? I mean, that's extraordinary to me. She says she has seen the ghost of her friend sitting there, but she doesn't believe in ghosts. In a way, we have to suspend or suspend our belief and suspend our disbelief. And partly writing fiction is a kind of suspension of, of those things too, in a way that's a, it's quite a, I mean, there's a parallel we could draw with that. But what's the difference between ghosts and the kind of continuous past that actually increasingly we seem to be thinking of in terms of, of memory that I mean you know are you the person who's sitting with me here but you're also a person who was 16 and doing something else completely different we're, we're all those things at the yeah. same time yeah is it not the same sort of thing I'm sure it is time as time as a continuum um, and also um, uh, I mean this is another reason why uh, film is particularly suited to this book mm -hmm. in a way because film is the most ghostly of mediums yeah. in some way uh, media in some way because it's a uh, there they are. There are people they are absolutely alive. They look more alive than you could ever believe from a photograph, which really looks ghostly. Photographs, we understand now, they're ghostly resonances because of writers like Sontag and Sebald. Film is another thing altogether. I've, I once saw footage of Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas, um, moving footage. Um, when you see photographs of them, they're like this. <laughs> they really are. They're, like, they're completely... <laughs> um, so I saw footage of them, and they were laughing. They're alive. They're, they've never died. They're alive. There they are. Um, Hugh McDermott, photographs of Hugh McDermott with that great kind of uh, ice cream whippy hair. I saw a film of him where a filmmaker called Margaret Tate, an Orkney filmmaker, had made him walk along a curb edge. And he's the most mischievous, lovely, between elements, live creature. You know, and he's the lion of 
everything Scottish literature is about, and he's, you know, he's, he, and he's completely mischievous and a child. You know, all of us, all the time, we're all, we're all our child selves. That moment, I don't know if ever, any of you have ever seen that documentary of Anne Frank, about Anne Frank, where there's a tiny moment of moving footage at the end, which people now believe is Anne Frank. That's just moved me to tears to see that, you know, to, to see this one, she's leaning out of the window watching a wedding, and she leans and she sees a camera on her. She always wanted to be a film star, Anne Frank. She sees the camera, she goes, and she, she shouts back to her mother, there's a camera! You know, you mm. see this, and it's like two seconds long, and it's, it just breaks your heart, because it's, I mean, the, the ghost is alive, and the liveness is ghost, you know? Anymore? Hmm. Yes, that hand? No. Ask more <laughs> questions. Come on. There's <laughs> one down yes. here. It might be heretical to say, but it's really good to hear a writer who's um, very happy to proclaim the importance of the visual and visual culture and, hmm. and cinema at the beginning. Hmm. Um, I just wondered whether you had ever thought strongly about the idea of telling your stories through a cinematic medium yourself. In other words, are you interested not just in writing screenplays, but eventually maybe in directing, producing, and actually controlling the whole creative process cinematically? Hmm. Um, my partner's a filmmaker. Um, she makes films for no money, uh, which means that she really does control everything, but it does mean that the control is, you know... Well, it, you know, there's not that much range you can do with it if, if you've got no money. Um, I have tried to write screenplays um, and got utterly frustrated by the fact that as soon as you've got something and it has to go to someone else, to someone else, to someone else, to someone else, the thing which will happen at the end will probably be nothing like uh, you started with. In a way, I have much more control as an, you know, if you want to use a, f a proper film term as, as an auteur um, than, uh, than ever when I, when I write a book because I can really decide. Um, um, I, and also, do you know, I think I'd be a really rubbish filmmaker. I really do. I think I'd be dreadful. Um, I don't have an eye for it at all. I think, you know, actually my, you know, my, my ears are my, my sense personally, and I, I think I'd just be rubbish, so... I don't, but that's a no, then. <laughs> <laughs> so far, that's a no. Yes, thank you. But, do you, yeah, so I suppose that then brings up the question of, of, is there kind of another form, which is this very visually informed literature yeah. that's going to move on? Well, think? it is. I mean, a lot of our literature is now very visually informed. Our sentences are short. Um, they're very visual. We see things from the outside as if we're wires or... Uh, observers in a way that uh, uh, fiction didn't do before, really before Thomas Hardy, who was, you can you can you can say that there's something cinematic happening in Hardy's work, and it's happened synonymously with cinemas. Um, but you get it too at the beginning of Stevenson, the beginning of, of um, curious case of Dr Jekyll and, and Mr Hyde, and you yeah. get that funny incident where the you know the yes. <laughs> all that sort of stuff, and it seems to me that is quite cinematic. What's the date? Oh, Cinema God, started in 1860. Yes, okay, so it's already it's 1860. There. So there were so people, people, were, people are beginning already. And, yeah. Well, it, no, that's not till the 1890s. Mm. People are beginning to uh, experiment with moving images. You know, I mean, they, they always do experiment with them, but they're really beginning in earnest to try and find a way to make pictures move for ourselves by in the 1860s, 1850s, 1860s. Yep. And maybe this is um, this is a great metaphor for the fact that the Hay Festival now has a lot of films. I think it's pretty interesting to be doing this book here this year. When you know it's a film for and channel four, and it's a very you know the the the, the in a way the forms are meeting up. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. Ali Smith, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for your questions. Thank Ali's you. Now going to be.